Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. After water and air, sand is the natural resource we consume more than any other, even more than oil. Every concrete building and paved road on earth, every computer screen and silicon chip is made from sand. From Egypt's pyramids to the Hubble telescope, from the world's tallest skyscraper to the sidewalks below it, from the stained glass windows at Chartres to your iPhone, sand shelters us, empowers us, engages us, inspires us. It's the ingredient that makes possible our cities, our science, our lives, and our future. And incredibly, we're running out of it. There's a new book out uh, released uh, just today, The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. And the author, uh, Vince Beiser, joins us. Vince Beiser, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's good to be here. Uh, so, uh, um, I guess my the fir- my first reaction to this was, who knew? I certainly didn't know. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's so ubiquitous that uh, apparently I've got sand in my underpants, right? The 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 elastic band, sands involved. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you know what? I had the exact same reaction, Tom, when I first ran across this story a few years ago. Just. You know, nobody ever thinks about sand. It's the most, it seems like the most boring, the most mundane thing in the world. And turns out it's actually the most important solid substance on Earth. Uh, so everything, and we'll get into talking about concrete uh, and glass, of course, which is basically just you know, sand melted down. Uh, wine refining, apparently you say. Yeah, they use uh, silica gel is uh, what they call a fining agent in wine, which is something you put in sort of late in the process to uh, to improve the flavor. It's just uh, there's all these uh, these these sort of very small, little known ways that we use sand. Like I mean, you mentioned the the elastic in your underwear that's made of silicone, which most people you know it's also the stuff that they use they make breast implants with. Silicone is also made from sand. Most sand is is quartz, which is silicon dioxide, and from that you get you get silicon, as in silicon chips, as in Silicon Valley, and also silicone. And so, uh, sand's involved in our iPhones, you know, and 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 in the tech as well. Absolutely. Well, so sand makes the the chips, the brains that your that your computers, that any piece of digital equipment runs on, and also the glass, the screen of your phone itself, is made. From sand, all all glass is basically just sand that's been melted down with a few other things thrown into it. So every window in every building that you see, every car windshield, every mirror, every drinking glass, every wine bottle, all made from sand. And I want to get into a lot of the, there's a lot of ramifications. We'll get into uh, global warming and. Uh... Um, globalization and uh, sustainability. Uh, this has geopolitical um, implications. Um, I'm curious, how did you, how did you uh, encounter this important topic? You, you know, I just kind of stumbled across it. I mean, I'm an, I'm an independent journalist, a uh, freelancer, so I'm always looking for a good story. And I read a lot of kind of obscure, off-the-beaten-track and in international publications. And I just ran across a, a little item in a, in a little environmental outfit called eJolt, which basically just said that, you know, let me know that uh, sand is the most consumed natural resource in the world. There's more of it than anything else except water and air, which made me kind of sit back and go, huh, we do? And then went on to say that we are starting to run out and that, uh, that the demand has gotten so intense uh, and things have gotten so bad that in some places, organized crime has actually gotten into the sand business, and hundreds of people have actually been killed over sand in the last few years. Hmm. And I thought, you know, like most people, I'd just never even given sand a second thought, never even, you know, thought, stopped to think, where does all the concrete that builds our, our cities and our roads come from? And I realized, wow, this is really, this is something crazy I've never heard of. There's definitely a story here. So it turns out the, that violence that I talked about is really at its worst in India. They have a huge problem with what they actually call the sand mafia, which is actually organized crime gangs that have taken over a lot of the sand trade and uh, you know commit a lot of violence to keep their control of it. So I went over to, to India and did a story for Wired magazine about the murder of this one particular guy who tried to stand up to the to the sand gang in his village and, and gotten shot dead for his trouble. And that that sort of got me off and running. 
so that brings us to um, an obvious point, which uh, you know another part part of this blew my mind. Apparently, we're running out of sand. How can we run out of sand? So we have whole deserts, don't we? Right. Great question. So first of all, um, all of that desert sand is pretty much useless. That's the bad news. So we use sand, the, the number one thing that we use sand for by far, we use it for dozens of things, but the number one thing is concrete, right? And if you just look around you right now you'll and, and stop to think about it, you'll realize uh, just about everything around you is made of concrete. Probably the building that you're sitting in, the road you drove in on, the, the mall you might stop in on on your way home, it's all built out of concrete, which is mostly just sand and gravel stuck together with cement. So to make all of that concrete, we use about 50 billion tons of sand every year. And, uh, and just to go back to the issue about desert sand, to make, to make concrete, you need sand that's going to kind of lock together like little bricks, which is the sand that you find at the bottom of rivers, at the bottom of lakes, on beaches, places like that. Desert sand is actually the wrong shape, believe it or not. It's been eroded by wind rather than water, and as a result... The, the actual grains are too round. They're too round and smooth, and they don't lock together the way that you need them to when you're building a concrete structure. It's like the difference between trying to build something out of a stack of marbles as opposed to trying to build something out of a stack of little bricks. So all that desert sand is useless. Uh, it's the other sand, that, the other kind of sand that we need, and there's a lot of beach sand, river sand, but at the end of the day, it's a finite resource like anything else. There's only so much of it, and we are using 50 billion tons every year. That's enough to cover the entire state of California with sand, and that's a lot. And ultimately, there's only so much of it in the world. So uh, where does the usable sand come from? I guess it's, it's uh, sand in water is what, you, is what you want? Yeah, exactly. So it's the sand that, um, that you find. So just to, to give you a picture, I'll, let me sand comes from. So we're mostly talking about quartz sand. That's sand is, you know, sand can be made of lots of things. The word actually just means little pieces of any hard material. So you have sand that's made of crushed up shells or crushed up corals, things like that. But most sand in the world is quartz sand. And it's really just little pieces of mountains that have been eroded away. You have mountains that get, um, you know, that are worked on by the elements, rain and wind and cold that are constantly working on them, breaking off those little grains. And then the rains wash those grains down the sides of mountains, take them into rivers and carry them. They get carried along by the rivers out to the sea, and those rivers drop deposit sand all along the way. So that's why river bottoms are often covered with sand. That's why we have beaches where it's at the places where rivers meet the ocean. And also rivers over time, you know, over the centuries, they change their course they flood their banks, and every time they do that, they leave sand behind. So you also have some of that river sand left in what's now dry land. So we get sand from all those places. We mine it from the bottom of rivers. We mine it from the land on floodplains. We mine it from beaches. We even mine it from the bottom of the ocean. Hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, becoming more lucrative, I imagine, if we're, if we're running out of this finite resource. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, sand mining. Again, <laughs> I've never thought of this such thing, but, uh, but uh, a pretty big industry and uh, fairly dangerous. Yeah, it's a very big industry. It's worth about $130 billion worldwide. Uh, and we do it, and it happens in lots of different ways. I mean, it, it runs the whole gamut from multinational corporations that send out giant uh, 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 barges, dredges that can be as long as 700 feet long, taller than a 60-foot apartment building. Um, those, those are ships that go out into big lakes or the ocean and just drop like a pipe, like basically a giant straw down to the, to the ocean bottom or the lake bottom and just suck up tens of thousands of tons of sand. Uh, goes all the way from that literally down to just, you know, a couple of guys with shovels who might go down to their local riverbank and and dig out a bunch of sand and load it on into a pickup truck or onto the back of a a donkey to sell it to the guy down the road who's building a building. So the thing about sand, one of the reasons that we use so much of it, why it's such a great building material is it's really easy to get. You know, a lot of it is it's very close to the surface. 
Um, you don't have to dig very far to get it, and there's, there's plenty of it. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that when you start pulling out sand in the quantities that we're talking about, on the scale that we're talking about, you also do enormous environmental damage. So to get all that sand that we need, we are stripping riverbeds bare and beaches bare all over the world, tearing up forests and farmlands uh, to get at that sand. Hmm. So a lot of environmental damage. Um, and this is, and you draw an analogy to, uh, you know, other finite resources, uh, oil, for example. There, there are some familiar patterns that, that go on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's happening with sand is, is in some ways comparable to what's happening with oil in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of it in the world, of course. Um, we're not running out of, like, the, the, the planet still holds a lot of oil and gas. But the stuff that's easiest to get to, that's easiest and cheapest to get to, is pretty much tapped out. And that's why we're having to go further and, and dig deeper and do more damage to get at the oil that's left. That's why we're having to do things like fracking or, or deep-sea uh, oil mining, you know, where they send these rigs out into places like the Gulf of Mexico and dig two miles under the ocean to get at the oil. We never used to have to do that 50, 60 years ago because there was so much oil that was much closer to the surface and easier to get at. But by now, like I said, we've tapped out the stuff that's, that's the most accessible, that's the easiest to get at, and we're having to, to go further and do more damage to get the stuff that's left. Well, a very similar thing is happening with sand. So the sand is really heavy. It's, it, a cubic yard of it weighs about a ton. So as soon as you start having to transport it more than a couple of miles, the price goes way, way up. So all the, the sand, much of the sand that's closest to the cities where you need it, is gone, or it's been built over. So we're having to go further and further afield to get it. And for instance, here in Los Angeles, where I live, a lot of the sand that built this city comes from a place called Irwindale, which 50, 60 years ago was you know, just pretty much wilderness. It was outside of town, sort of out in the, in the desert, and nobody cared if, you know, there was a gigantic sand pit there with bulldozers and everything else at work. But now the city has grown up completely around it, and Irwindale is now basically a suburb of Los Angeles. Nobody wants a giant open pit mine right in the middle of their suburb. So Irwindale is mostly shut down, and Builders here in Los Angeles are having to go much further out, haul that sand by truck from much further out in the state, which boosts the price and also creates a lot more truck traffic. Sounds like we've uh, lost Mr. Beiser. Are you there, Mr. Beiser? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, you you dropped out just briefly. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Uh, Okay, well, what I was was just saying that... uh, you know, we're already having to go further and further to get the sand that we need and, and do, more, do more damage to get it. Um, this is, it's, start, it's happening in this country, but it's, it's happening on a much bigger and, and worse scale in places like China and India, where, uh, where, they're, where cities are growing like crazy, where they're just developing at breakneck speed. And of course, as it gets uh, gets more valuable, uh, a little harder to, to, to find, then you, you have the illegal activity that you uh, referenced earlier. Uh, you know, sand pirates, <laughs> I guess, is the colorful way to, to talk about this. Uh, one one story. I wonder if you could t- tell us about this. Um, thieves in Jamaica made off with uh, essentially a, a whole beach. Yes, <laughs> crazy but true. Um, yeah, a few years ago in Jamaica, uh, local folks, um, in this one area woke up and found that about a quarter mile of beautiful white sand beach was just gone. The sand had just disappeared and they, they're pretty sure that what happened was, um, a developer, a guy who was, uh, building a, a hotel resort complex a few miles away needed sand for his own beach. And so sent truck, a load of uh, trucks in the night to steal this sand, this beautiful sand from this one beach, and haul it over and dump it on his own beach. So this actually, um, there was a big investigation about it in Jamaica. The, uh, the national police were called in, 
and they eventually dropped the case because some of the the key witness got scared. He said his life had been threatened um, by the folks who had stolen the sand and just didn't want to, you know, he was too scared to, to carry on with it. Mm. So, but I should also say, as crazy as that sounds, that someone would steal a beach, it's not the only time it's happened. It's also happened in, um, in Russia, in Hungary, uh, in other places around the world. In Morocco, there's entire beaches that have been completely stripped down to bare rock to look like, you know, places that were lovely beaches a few years ago that are now just look like, you know, like the surface of the moon or something. Um, because that sand, uh, you know, it's very easy to get, and you can make a lot of money selling it. Hmm. it there, there's a metaphor in here, I think, right? At least this is a <laughs> this is an example of, um, I guess, the forces that and the choices that, that we make as a whole uh, about our environment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it. You know what it tells us is that uh, we really need to stop and think, not just about sand, but about all the natural resources that we're using. Sand is the most abundant thing on the planet. There's more of it than any other thing, and if we're starting to run out of that, which we are, that tells you we're really in trouble. So we all know, you know, everybody's heard, oh, we're running out of, we're using too much fresh water, and we're using, cutting down too many trees, fishing too many fish out of the ocean. All of those things, once upon a time, not so long ago, were things that we thought were basically infinite. We just figured, you know, there are so many fish in the sea, we can catch as much as we want, no problem. We can chop down all the trees we want, the forests go on forever. But guess what? We're finding now, none of that is true. Everything has a limit. And we're really finding out uh, the hard way in a lot of instances that we can't continue doing that, that we have to be more careful about how we use those resources, that we can't use as much of them, we have to recycle more of them. Um, and the same is true of sand. Mm. And the same is true with ultimately everything that, we, everything that we use on this planet. And to me, the bottom line is, it shows that we really have no choice. We've, in a world where there are 7 billion people now, and we're heading towards a world of 9 billion people, we've got to find a way to live, to live on this planet in a way that's sustainable, in a way that's not going to, or we're not going to literally exhaust the physical resources of this planet. Um, how do, I was going to treat this later, but I'll bring it forward. Uh, how do you think we do that? That's an excellent question. So, um, so I have sort of two answers to that. One is looking, talking just about uh, sand itself. There's a few things that we there's a few things that we can do. Um, one is uh, better regulations, better regulations and enforcement of regulations. I'll say that here in this country, in the United States, the the environmental issue is not. It's not such a big problem when we're talking about sand. There are definitely environmental problems caused by sand mining here in the U.S., but it's not nearly on the scale of what's happening in places like India, China, Vietnam, and so on, where you really have just massive destruction of, of whole river systems and so on. So in those places, what we really need to do is, is to push for uh, better regulations, you know, rules about where and how much sand you can, you can extract, uh, and then also the big problem often is enforcement. I mean, in India, for instance, they've got very good laws on the books, but they very rarely get enforced because there's so much corruption in the system. So addressing the issue of, of corruption is also, is also a big issue. And there are definitely a lot of organizations around the world that are working on that. Um, another angle is uh, technology um, can offer some help. There are a lot of researchers working on things like concrete that uses less sand or concrete that uses that will last longer so it doesn't have to be replaced as often or uh, replacing sand with other substances like shredded plastic or bamboo and so on um, all those things I think are great and deserve our support um, at the end of the day though like I said the only the only real long-term solution is we just need to figure out a way to to consume less so some things to think about is, uh, is 
a good place to start, I think, are cars. You might say, well, what does a car have to do with sand? Well, most uh, single-family homes in America pretty, these days pretty much always have a garage and a driveway, big structures that use hundreds and hundreds of tons of sand that are just there to support your car. Well, if we could move towards a world where fewer people needed cars, I'm not saying everybody has to give up their car, but if we had a world where more people lived closer together with better public transport, uh, or maybe, you know, that, uh, you know, with in, in, in cities or areas that, that made getting around on a bicycle easier, fewer people would need their cars. And that would mean we could have that many fewer garages, that many fewer driveways, that many fewer parking structures, which would save hundreds of thousands of tons of sand every year, not to mention all the other materials that would go into building those cars. So that's just one example of how if you can think about, you know, eliminating or reducing the use of one thing in your life, it can actually have a big knock-on effect in terms of the resources that you consume. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Vince Beiser's book is The World in a Grain, the story of sand and how it transformed civilization. Uh, you can find him at the website, uh, vincebeiser.com, and on Twitter, he's uh, at VinceLB. Uh, we are at UPR Access, and you can uh, get to us as well. We'd love to have your question or comment to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or on Twitter at upraxcess. And uh, when we come back, I want to get into a little bit of history and uh, this statement from uh, from Vince Beiser. Sand has completely transformed where we live, work, and how we move around. We'll talk a bit about that following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cash Arts 2018 through 2019 National Touring Season, offering season tickets beginning August 14th for shows including Bar J Wranglers and Dr. Kaboom. Ticket and seating information at cashearts.org. Myths and legends universal to all cultures are stories about events. Often myths include something supernatural and they are passed down orally from generation to generation. It is very common for a group of people to share a belief about their creation. One creation story from the Bantu tribe of Central Africa begins, In the beginning there was only darkness, water, and the great god Bamba. One day Bamba, in pain from a stomachache, vomited up the sun. The sun dried up some of the water, leaving land. Still in pain, Bamba vomited up the moon, the stars, and then some animals, the leopard, the crocodile, the turtle, and finally, some men. Stories such as this provide a shared sense of community and connection to the past. This segment of Anthropology, What's It To You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a very interesting new book. It's uh, released today, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How it Transformed Civilization. The author is Vince Beiser. You can reach us uh, several ways. We'd love to get your question or comment for Vince Beiser at uh, UPR Access on Twitter, at UPR Access. You can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And the phone number, toll-free, is 800-826-1495. So, Vince Weiser, before the break, I uh, quoted you, sand has completely transformed where we live, work, and how we move around. You've also said, without sand, we have no modern civilization. Uh, Why is that? Well, as I said at the beginning of of the hour, sand is really the thing that our cities, modern cities, are made out of. So one of the the most important facts of modern life is just concrete. And concrete, uh, this really was something that really, really blew my mind when I started looking into this, because I'd never even thought about concrete. You know, we think about it, most people just, it's like, you know, it's like the air around us. You just, it's just kind of there and nobody stops to think about, well, where did it come from and what's it made out of? Well, come to find out, about a hundred, just a little over a hundred years ago, there were barely any concrete buildings at all in the world. Concrete has been around for a long time, but modern reinforced concrete, the stuff that we build skyscrapers out of, 
is quite a recent invention. It really only came into use around the turn of the 20th century. Um, and it was kind of a new, at the time, you know, people were building out of bricks and wood and, and steel. And there was a particular guy, an architect named uh, Ernest Ransom in San Francisco, who really invented modern reinforced concrete. That's the concrete with the steel bars that you see. Um, he really kind of perfected that technique and tried and tried and tried to, to get people to adopt it. But he met a lot of skepticism. People were, you know, builders at the time thought, well, why should we use this, this untried, this new material? You know, why don't we just stick with, you know, bricks and stone, what we know? Well, he did manage to, Ransom did manage to get a few buildings put up, made out of his concrete in San Francisco. And then in 1906 came the San Francisco earthquake, one of the worst earthquakes in American history massive earthquake that sparked a gigantic fire that raged for three days, pretty much destroyed all of San Francisco, except when the smoke cleared and the dust settled there in the ruins, guess what was left more or less intact? Ransom's concrete buildings, because of course they're pretty much fireproof. And uh, that, that was one of the things that really kind of opened people's eyes and really made them go, wow, this is, this material is just, is kind of amazing. It's super easy to work with. It's cheap. Um, you can make all kinds of shapes with it. This stuff really works well. And from that point on, concrete, the use of concrete just exploded and came into just incredibly widespread use all over this country and from there all over the world. And if you think about it, today, uh, when we're building, you know, when you, you see people building, you know, housing developments that go up in a few months or skyscrapers in China that go up in less than a year, there's no way you could build like that with bricks or stone or wood. You can't build a, a, an 80-story building out of bricks. The only thing, the only thing we've ever discovered that can build cities of the type that we have today is concrete. And so... Like I said, concrete has completely transformed the shape of our cities and how we live in them. Also, how we get around on them. Right around that same time that concrete was coming into use, um, there was a big problem with roads. Well, the other big thing that was happening at that time was the automobile. Right around the turn of the 20th century, this new invention, the automobile, was really becoming popular. People you know, were starting to buy them by the millions, but there were very few paved roads in the United States at that time. I'm talking something on the order of about 100 miles of paved roads, paved highways in the entire country at the turn of the century. You can't really drive an automobile on an unpaved road very well. Um, certainly you can't get anywhere very fast. But all of a sudden, we had both the automobiles and all these automobile owners clamoring for better roads to drive on, and this new miracle substance, concrete, boom, put them together, concrete highways all of a sudden just exploded all across the country. And from that grew our system of highways and the, and the United States, the interstate uh, highway system, which has also, you know, it's thanks to the highways that we have suburbs and shopping malls and the whole pattern of, of uh, development in the United States. So it's not an overstatement to say that the, the use of sand in the form of concrete and asphalt and glass completely changed how, where most Americans live, how they get from place to place, and even, uh, you know, where they go to work. Yeah, we, do, we don't stop and think, do we? Uh, I wonder, <laughs> I certainly have, hadn't, uh, that I'm, I'm surrounded by sand. Um, do you think that awareness helps? Maybe if we think about the, uh, maybe the environmental implications, or, or just the, just any implications from the fact that we are we're, we're living with sand. I think so. I mean, you know, listen, I'm a journalist. My whole job is about trying to raise people's awareness, trying to point out uh, important issues and get people to care about them. So, so I kind of have. Uh, are you, are you with us? Mr. Mr. Beiser. Sounds like we, uh, we may have lost Mr. Beiser. Let's, uh, let's go to another break. And, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll reconnect. Uh, our guest is Vince Beiser, and uh, the book is The World in a Grain. More following this. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the fourth annual Randy Worth Half Century Ride, Saturday, August 11th. Partners with the Stokes Nature Center to improve bird habitats along the Logan River Trail System. Registration information at randyworthhcr.org. I'm Danny Hayes, the Assistant News Director for Utah Public Radio. Public Radio is all about community, and because of this, we want to hear from you. What do you want to hear on the radio? Do you want to hear more political stories? How about stories from the science or art world? If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us here at the station, we'd love to hear them. Visit our website at upr.org or share your ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to use the hashtag IamUPR. Thanks. I'm Greg Dalton. On the next Climate One, eating less meat to save the planet. Americans love burgers, but do they have to come from a cow? The cow is just the technology we've used up till now to produce beef. You can still have your beef. It'll be better, and it won't be produced using a cow. So no loss to anyone. The new surf and turf on the next Climate One. Tune in Friday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for being with us for Access Utah. We're talking about sand. Uh, sand is everywhere in the sense that it surrounds us. It's in the concrete that uh, builds our buildings, our highways, the asphalt. Also in our iPhones, uh, in our eyeglasses, the plate glass that you're uh, looking through. Um, it's ubiquitous. And uh, interesting new book, The World in a Grain. Vince Spicer is the author. You can join us here to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, on Twitter at upraxcess. So, Vince Spicer, uh, before, um, before the break, we, uh, you, were t- you were saying that uh, in answer to my question, uh, do you think awareness helps, that uh, as a journalist you, you kind of have to think that, and, and I guess you do. Um, I wonder if you could... Uh, well, just parenthetically, it's interesting that uh, Thomas Edison appears everywhere. He appears in this story as well, right? He was, he was all in in with concrete. He does, yeah. He was, you know, Thomas Edison in his day was he was kind of the Steve Jobs of his time. You know, was the guy who just kept coming up with one amazing invention after another after another, and he latched onto concrete very early on, and saw that it was really going to be the material of the future than most folks, though, and he declared that he was going to build houses entirely out of concrete, and not just houses, but also furniture. He was going to put, fill them with concrete furniture and even pianos made out of concrete. So his concrete furniture never really caught on for reasons <laughs> that I think are pretty obvious yeah. now. Um, but, uh, you know, it just goes to show you how, how excited people were at the time and what, at the time, what a what a novel and just revolutionary idea this whole this invention of reinforced concrete was. I wonder if we talk a little bit more about uh, glass um, and a little of the history there. Um, and glass, we don't stop to think about that. Glass is is I guess this is a simplified version. Glass is sand uh, heated uh, to super hot temperatures. Yeah, basically it, it's melted is what it is. It's, it's high-purity high sand, sand that's very high uh, in quartz content, that's melted down in, you know, uh, at extremely hot temperatures and mixed with a couple of other, uh, mixed with a couple of other uh, elements, calcium and other, other bits and pieces. But mainly it's just melted-down glass. And when you melt, melt down those sand grains, the, their chemical composition changes and and they fuse into glass which is also a material that we just we never really stop to think about but when you do it is absolutely astonishing how much how glass has changed human life i mean you know first of all we have windows right that's where most of us see glass windows are a fantastic invention that which if you think about what life was like before we had cheap and abundant windows it meant that you spend much more of your time in the dark, right? I mean, you know, windows give us, you know, bring in so much more light and, and much more, you know, beautiful structures. From that, glass really powered the scientific revolution because it's from glass makes lenses, the lenses that, that make microscopes and telescopes work. If you think about it, imagine all of the scientific knowledge, all the scientific research that's been done, all the discoveries that we've made 
thanks to the microscope, thanks to being able to see things up close in unbelievable detail, that wouldn't be possible without glass. It's the microscope lens that makes that possible. Same thing with telescope lenses. Telescopes let us see further than we ever could with the naked human eye, and that's only possible because of the glass lenses in them, because skilled glass grinders learned how to melt sand down, form it into those discs, and grind it down into lenses that have just completely reshaped our understanding of the universe and, uh, and, the, and the physical world that we live in. So it's really, you know, without those things, without the lens, we would not have had the scientific revolution. We wouldn't have science as, as we know it. Not to mention just eyeglasses, right? I mean, I personally, I need eyeglasses just to get through my everyday. And that, again, those are the, the thing that makes them work is the glass, which is nothing but melted-down sand. Mm. I want to return to uh, concrete. There's an uncomfortable fact. Uh, again, I, I, I hadn't focused on this. Concrete doesn't last. There's a lot of different reasons why that is, but it but it's true, and this presents problems for all of that infrastructure that makes modern society possible. That's right. This is a major, major problem that is coming our way on a planetary scale. Because we've built so much out of concrete, and without really stopping to think about what's going to happen when we have to replace all of that concrete. Because we tend to think, well, concrete, it's basically stone. It lasts forever, right? It doesn't at all. It lasts maybe, you know, a couple few decades, depending on how well it was made and what it's been used for. But your average concrete building is only meant to last 40, 50, maybe 60 years. Um, and that's because it gets, it gets worn down. It gets worn down by the elements. I can get into the details if you really you really want to hear but suffice to say the stuff doesn't last it's very strong but it, it does deteriorate um, relatively quickly and then it needs to be replaced and replacing it can be a very expensive proposition so if you stop to think about all of the buildings all of the highways all of the dams that are made out of concrete almost all of which will need to be replaced you know over the next 50 80 100 years it is a staggering amount. It is literally, we're looking at trillions of dollars in costs to replace all those buildings, um, not to mention all of the, you know, the environmental damage that results, will result from our having to dig up all that, enough sand to replace all those buildings. And that is something very, very few people are focusing on, and I think it's going to be a major, major issue, not soon, not next week, not next month, but you know, within our children's lifetimes, it's going to be a... a very serious problem. Uh, there's uh, other implications. Um, you talked about the hum- human cost. There's uh, you know sand pirates. There's violence. Um, there's geopolitical considerations. I want to read this. This is a paragraph from a op-ed piece you wrote for the New York Times. You treat this in the book as well. You say, one of the most dangerous confrontations between the United States and China is heating up. Warships are being deployed. Bombers are taking wing. Threats are being exchanged. All of it sparked by China's growing mastery of the use of the world's most overlooked natural resource, sand. This has to do with uh, China's creating whole new islands, right? They're they're expanding their borders, and that's causing uh, geopolitical tensions. Exactly right. They are creating new land where there was used to be only open ocean. So this particular... Can you still hear me? Am I coming through uh, there? Yes, yes. Okay, good. Um, so what that piece is focusing on is there's a, an area in the South China Sea that's, um, that's an incredibly strategic spot for the whole world. It's something... An enormous amount of the world's shipping travels through there, and there's also billions of dollars worth of gas and oil underneath the ocean right at that spot, and also something like 10% of all the world's uh, fish are all in this area. So everybody wants to control this area, everybody in that zone, China, Japan, the Philippines, and we, the United States, our position has always been keep it open. We want to make sure that uh, shipping traffic can pass through the area. So it's been a very hotly disputed area for the last few decades. Now, there's nothing naturally in that area, except for a a few rocks and and reefs called the Spratleys. What China did, they seized control of about seven of those just rocks 
and then used those enormous suction dredges that I mentioned earlier to pull up millions of tons of sand from the bottom of the ocean and spray them, just blast them through giant pipes on top of those rocks until they had piled up enough sand that, lo and behold, there's an island there where there used to be nothing but water. And on those islands, they're now building military bases, airstrips that can handle military aircraft, ports that can handle military submarines, uh, places, you know, uh, bases that can support soldiers, anti-aircraft missiles, all of that. And this is a big concern for all of their neighbors and for the U.S. because, obviously, this gives China the ability to place to put a military facility smack in the middle of this incredibly strategic part of the ocean. And, indeed, the United, just in the last couple of months, we've sent bombers flying overhead. We've sailed warships past. There's a lot of, and China has done the same. China has made a big show of landing bombers on these islands to show that it, what it can do. It's a lot of saber rattling and threats being exchanged over it, um, and it, it really could become a very dangerous flashpoint. So dredging, dredging for sand has become a, a I guess, a you know, geopolitical weapon. Exactly. I mean, really, you know, we're, we've entered an era, and just recently, just in the last couple of decades, where countries can change, actually change the shape of their borders by creating new land where there wasn't any before. I mean, the Spratleys is, Spratly Islands is definitely the most, the place where this is creating the most danger, where it's really bringing China and the United States, the world's superpowers, into closer and closer to conflict. But it's also, just, the artificial land is also being created all over the world. People are, uh, China... Uh, Indonesia, lots of places, countries are creating new land where there wasn't any before. So in some places, that's, that's got really scary geopolitical implications because you can, you can actually change the shape of your borders. In a lot of places, it's just creating incredibly valuable new real estate out of thin air on, on, on what used to be just water. And you might have seen pictures of those crazy palm tree-shaped islands that Dubai has built, those are, those are nothing but sand. That's just millions of tons of sand they dredged from the bottom of the Persian Gulf and piled up, formed into these palm tree-shaped islands, gigantic uh, artificial islands, atop which they've built hotels and resorts and, and luxury housing and then sold. And they've created billions of dollars of new real estate out of nothing but sand. Hmm. Um, <laughs> build your house on sand, build your resort on sand. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the Bible. Uh, I don't know if there's, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if there's going to be a problem in the future with, with that. Well, they're all, it's already creating some problems for sure. I mean, as always, you tear that much sand out of anywhere, you're going to, you're going to do considerable damage to the environment. So for instance, those, those, the Palm uh, Island in, uh, in Dubai, they dumped all that sand. Those are one of them is built right on top of what used to be a coral reef. What used to be a very rich, thriving coral reef is now dead. Right? It's literally been buried. Same thing with those Spratly Islands in China. Um, that was those were enormous coral reefs full of fish and all kinds of aquatic life. All of that has just been wiped out, completely obliterated. I wonder. Uh, it are you there? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's okay. I was just going to say, you know, you, you can't change the planet on a scale like that. You can't pull up that much sand from one place and dump it in another place without doing some serious damage to whatever was there before you dumped all that sand. Yeah, that, those are massive changes, uh, quote-unquote artificial, right? Um Mm-hmm. Not, not natural processes. Uh, I want to talk about uh, desertification. You you treat this in the book, and this is this has to do with that worthless sand. You know the, the sand that you can't use in concrete. Uh, but there there are areas in the world where uh, you know deserts move. They en- they encroach on places where humans want to live. There is an interesting scene in the book. You um you went out to China and uh, met with an official with the uh, the forestry service out there. There. They're trying to put up some defenses against uh, encroaching deserts. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's uh, this is sort of a bit of a left turn in the book. That that one chapter about 
know, sand helps us so much in so many ways, and but then here's this way in which sand kind of becomes our enemy, which is encroaching deserts. Um, in a nutshell, what's happening in China and in many other countries, including this country, by the way, is that deserts are growing basically because we're using too much water. We're tapping out, um, you know, between industry, ranching, and uh, human use, a lot of uh, aquifers, underground water sources, um, that used to sustain, that used to keep a a scrubland scrubby. You guys know all about this in Utah. Um, We're tapping out that water. So the, the desert that really dead sand desert expands those plants whatever plants were living there before can't survive anymore that land dries up the desert expands the wind blows the the sand is no longer anchored by plants and the wind blows it outward expanding the desert so in china they have a massive problem with this because their economy is growing so fast they're using up so much water they've got so much more livestock than they used to that's that's overgrazing um, a lot of these dry lands and turning them into desert. So to try to combat it, they have launched the biggest tree planting program that the world has ever seen. They're building a belt of trees. They're planting a belt of forest 3,000 miles long. So imagine an artificial forest stretching from, you know, that would stretch all the way from San Francisco to Boston. That's what they're, that's what they're building in China to try to block that desert keep that desert from expanding any further mm. now uh, this is this type of thing has had mixed success right you, you point out that in algeria it didn't really work i think it was algeria exactly that's right so they tried to they're trying to do the same thing in uh in africa because the sahara desert there is expanding uh in algeria in the in uh where they tried to do the same thing in algeria it just completely failed basically because it's hard to get trees to grow in a desert sort of obvious when you stop and think about it but um but nonetheless in a lot of places around the world they keep trying and in china the same thing i mean the government of china insists that this program is a huge success they've planted billions and billions of trees and they've stopped the desert but a lot of independent researchers will tell you that in fact many of those trees have just simply died very quickly and the ones that haven't the only reason they're surviving is that they're sucking up what's left of that underground water, right? They're, they're drawing their roots down, tapping down to those underground aquifers, which will mean in 10 or 20 years, those trees will have used up all that underground water. The trees will die, and then whatever shrubs and grasses used to live there won't be able to come back because all the water will be gone. So a lot of folks think, this is this this great green wall, as it's called in China, is just going to become a gigantic environmental disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, a counterproductive, you know, to to what they're trying to do. Uh, we just have a few minutes left. I want to uh, you you talk about Florida and the the beaches there as an example of uh, of another problem that we have with 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 sand. Um, the, of course, some beaches uh, disappear because of the sand pirates, but in other cases. Um, Things we're doing to the environment um, uh, caused just uh, sort of the "quote unquote" natural beach erosion to accelerate. Yeah. So what's happening in South Florida and in other places is the beaches are literally disappearing, and the reason for that is so beaches erode naturally all the time, right? Wind and waves come in and sweep those grains out into the ocean, and normally, in the natural course of things, what happens is. Those, that sand, those grains are replaced usually by currents. You know, the ocean current brings down sand from other places and replenishes those beaches. So you have this cycle going on where sand is always being lost, but it's always being replaced. But human beings have, re- have interrupted that, have blocked that process from happening. So in Florida, what's happened is we've built so much, we've developed that coast so much. We've built so many marinas and jetties and all these man-made objects that are sticking out into the water, that it blocks that, that current-borne sand. It, it prevents it from getting to the beach. So that natural erosion continues, but the natural replenishment does not. And as a result, those beaches are just simply disappearing. Now, what they did for quite a few years in places like Miami Beach and Fort Lauderdale, a lot of these other very famous Florida beaches, was they simply said, okay, 
we'll just go offshore. We'll just send out a dredge into the and, and suck up some sand from the ocean floor and shoot it up onto the beach. Fresh sand, no problem. So that worked just fine for a while, but the problem is by now they have literally run out of sand in southern Florida. They have used up all of the ocean sand that they are able to get to. So for now, they're, they're, they're scrambling around. They're bringing in sand by truck. They're having to, to go hundreds of miles inland, dig up sand from, from onshore mines, and then haul it to the beach in, in trucks, you know, one diesel-spewing truck after another. And things have gotten so bad, they're actually starting to talk about importing sand all the way from the Bahamas to keep their beaches looking nice. <laughs> you got to admire the can-do spirit, right? But uh, also the hubris, <laughs> hubris involved. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, listen, Miami Beach without a beach is not much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it illustrates, you know, I guess the economics are involved as well, right? If you're a poorer uh, economy, uh, maybe you export your sand to a richer economy. Absolutely, and that that is exactly what's happening in in a lot of those uh, Caribbean islands. You have the same process at work, and some of the poorer uh, Caribbean islands, like there's an island called uh, Barbuda, not Bermuda, but Barbuda, which has almost wiped itself out basically by selling sand to wealthier islands, um, like the Virgin Islands and so on, because that's pretty much the only resource that they have to sell. But as a result, their island is just being dismantled piece by piece. Well, very interesting book. Uh, it's out today, The World in a Grain, The Story of Sand and How It Transformed Civilization. The author, Vince Beiser, has joined us. Uh, Vince Beiser, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me. It was great talking with you. You can find uh, Vince Beiser at VinceBeiser.com and uh, the book well worth uh, the read. Uh, coming up tomorrow, hope you'll uh, join me for a conversation with another great author, uh, Gary Paul Navhan. <laughs> Um, as a Franciscan brother and ethnobotanist who's often mixed mirth with earth, laughter with landscape, food with frolic, Napan now takes on a large, many-branched question in his book Mesquite, an arboreal love affair. What does it mean to be a tree, or accordingly to be in deep and intimate relationship with one? Gary Paul Napan, his new book Mesquite, an arboreal love affair, that's tomorrow. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today. I think the main reason why I love Bullseye is Jesse's ability to really ask sincere questions, not just because he's trying to get an interesting answer, but because he seems to really want to know. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, my conversation with Beth Ditto, the former singer of The Gossip. Plus, we'll remember Jonathan Gold, the Pulitzer Prize-winning food writer. That's all on the next Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Saturday afternoons at 1, here on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University's Center for Women and Gender, providing a professional and social climate to enhance opportunities through learning, discovery, and engagement. Information at womenandgender.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.